0: behind the knife the surgery podcast where we take a behind the scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field
1: Okay, and welcome. This is Jason Bingham and Wu Do with Behind the Knife. We are once again at the 2018 13th Annual uh, Academic Surgical Congress. Uh, Today, uh, we had the opportunity to sit down with uh, AAS president, Dr. Rebecca Sippel, um, and discuss her fantastic keynote address she gave about uh, redefining success. We talked to Matthew Martin about uh, trauma resuscitation and the use of TAG-ROTEM. And we talked to Dr. Joaquim Havens from uh, Brigham and Women's uh, Hospital about emergency general surgery. Once again, just be sure to check our show notes and subscribe to our mailing list. Follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife, and uh, let's get started with it, Dr. Rebecca Sippel. Okay, Jason and Wu back here at ASC 2018. We are very fortunate enough to be able to sit down with the uh, current president of the Association for Academic Surgery, uh, Dr. Rebecca Sippel. She's an endocrine surgeon and associate professor and chief of the Division of Endocrine Surgery at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Dr. Sippel, thank you for sitting down with us today.
2: Yeah, thank you for having
1: me. Uh, I was wondering if you could just, uh, f- just to start off, just talk, uh, talk to us about your experience and, and uh, over this past year of being the president of AAS and uh, what all has gone into that? What have some of the challenges been? What have some of the rewards been?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that I have been very involved in the Association for Academic Surgery ever since I started uh, my faculty career. I mean, honestly, it even dates back to when I was a resident. You know, when I was a resident, the first time I came to this meeting is when I attended the Fundamentals of Surgical Research course. Uh, And I think I have always resonated with this organization and what it stands for. Um, This organization's mission is to inspire and develop young academic surgeons. And I think that is a mission statement that really resonates with me. And it's because of that that I have wanted to get involved in it. Um, My first involvement was my very first year on faculty. I applied to be a counselor, and I was elected to the executive council as a representative of my class. And I really got to see then what the leadership was doing and what this organization was doing, and it just triggered me to want to get more involved. Involved. And I've been really lucky to be involved in, in the executive council and the leadership of this organization for almost 10 years. Um, you know, obviously, when you're so involved and passionate about an organization, you know, it's your dream to ultimately to ascend to the presidency. Um, and, I, you know, I'm just honored to be in this position and to have this opportunity because this is an organization that I think is truly on mission and understands what we are and what we're trying to do Um over the last ten years, to see the growth of the organization and what we've accomplished, I think is truly amazing. Uh, and I think, in particular, I'm really proud of this academic surgical congress and what it's become. You know, from when I first came, we first merged the AAS and SEOs meetings ten years ago, mm-hmm. um, and at that time, prior to the merging, each individual meeting only had maybe three to four hundred people attending, and now jointly we have almost two thousand attendees. Wow. Um, And it's not just the amazing science and the the quality of that, but it's also the programming. You know, the lunch sessions are just amazing. And they're all about academic development and sort of giving you tips and and guides on how to get – more out of your career and how to achieve success in academic surgery. And I think that every time I come to this conference, I leave kind of inspired and and refocused on why I chose to do academic surgery and where I want to be going forward. Um, So, you know, my job today as president, you know, is is yesterday when I gave my talk is is I wanted to try to do what I could to help inspire and develop young academic surgeons. And that's what I wanted to do with my presidential address. Um, And I hope that I had that effect. I hope that everyone left the room with just a little bit more thought uh, about where they want to go and what they want to do in their future careers.
1: Well, first of all, I just want to congratulate you on a a great conference that you put together. Everybody has had nothing but great things to say about how the conference is going this year, so congratulations on that. I did want to return to your presidential address that you gave yesterday because it's another thing that people were just seem to be blown away. If If you feel comfortable, do you think you could share a little bit of the story that you told yesterday?
2: Yeah, you know, I think you know. Any time you think about sort of, you know, I, the way I looked at it is, I had the opportunity to be on that stage yesterday, and what could I possibly say or share or take advantage of, you know, to try to connect with the audience in a meaningful way. And um, you know, everybody has their own life story, and and mine probably wasn't different from most people in the rooms. I unfortunately, you know, suffered a pretty major accident about four years ago, where I was run over by a car and almost died, and. You know, thankfully I've recovered from that and been able to regain almost all the function that I lost and been able to return to the life that I lived before. And I'm really grateful for that. But I think when you go through the life changing event like that, it really allows you to kind of step back and pause for a moment and really take some time to reflect. And I think so many of us get so busy and we're so committed and And I know I was in this mode where I was literally just trying to meet the deadline for tomorrow and meet the next expectation that I was so stuck running on that in the wheel just trying to keep up with the day-to-day demands that I wasn't really ever stopping to pause and reflect and really think about where am I, what am I doing, and and is this really what I want to be doing? And I think that that accident was, was probably the greatest gift for me because it gave me a time to just stop for a moment and really say, wow, what am I doing? And what of this does it really matter? and and what should I be focusing on? Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I realized because of the limited capacity that I had that I really couldn't do everything I was doing before, so I really had to sit and prioritize things. Yeah. And, and that was a really <laughs> eye-opening experience for me because I had never taken the time to really ask myself what mattered most and what was my real priorities and to really look at what I was doing and try to figure out what I really should be spending my time on and what things I was doing but really were just draining my energy and taking away time time from the things that really mattered to me. Okay. Um, and so that really allowed me to sort of reprioritize things. And, and as much as I had to cut a lot of things out of what I did, what I found is is that I actually got more effective at what I was doing because I was spending my time on the things that mattered most. And I wasn't just doing it and meeting the expectations. I was doing it better because I had more time. And I think if we think about all the things that we do, there's a lot of things I can meet expectations. But if I had a little bit more time, I could exceed expectations, you know, and I could do more. And I think that that's, that's where we really have the growth opportunity, right? Is if we all just did a little bit less, but did it that much better, we could make such greater strides forward as a field. And I think that that's what I learned from this is, and that's my hope, my message to academic surgery is that stop trying to do it all, do a little bit less, but do it that much better.
3: So that's a very powerful message. And there are a lot of young surgeons, young residents here that really need to hear this. now. I have a feeling that when you were a young resident, you probably didn't say no very much, that you accepted all this, uh, all the projects that were offered to you, all the great opportunities. You probably said yes, 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 uh, time and time again. For those of us who are also kind of stuck in that mode, uh, what kind of tips do you have for navigating that, for gracefully saying no?
2: I think it's hard. You're right. And and maybe it's not fair because the reason I'm here and I'm in this position to be able to say it is because I got to that position because I said yes, yes, yes. Right. Um, you know, I think it was a lot of hard work and doing every opportunity and trying to be the one who proved that I would always get the job done. Uh, and that's how, what created the opportunities for me. Um, you know, I think it's hard and how how you navigate that. I think if I look back what I wish I had done is I wish I had just done a little bit more thoughtful um, you know, reflection at that time about what I cared about most so that I was saying yes to the things that mattered most. Um, and and I wasn't saying yes to things that really weren't in line with where I wanted to go or were going to take me in some direction. Because what I found is, is that if you do one thing and you do it really well, that will lead to more opportunities, right? If you do three things and you do a mediocre, it may not lead to any opportunities. Um, and I think, you know, maybe one good example of this was, is that I was asked to be the program chair of our endocrine meeting the year after the accident. And part of me probably should have said no, but I just, I really cared about that organization and I wanted to do it. And I didn't have a lot of things else on my plate. I was able to clear my plate. And so as that program chair, I put my all into that program and I did everything I could to make it run smoothly. And so many people told me that that was the smoothest run meeting and it ran so well. And everyone was so thrilled with how that meeting had run that they wanted to make me secretary the next year. And so... Here it was, is I was only doing one thing, but I was doing it in an organization that really was important to me, and I put my all into it, and it was really effective, and then it immediately led to another, even better opportunity. So I think sometimes we're under this illusion that in order to achieve success, we have to do a lot in a lot of different venues, but I think sometimes that volume doesn't ever really show your capabilities. And so sometimes doing just a few things, but doing it really well, allows you to really stand out. And it's going to create more opportunities for you in the long run.
1: Do you have an example of uh, either something in the past that you wish you had said said no to, that you said yes to, or something maybe more recently that now that you have that insight, you were able to say, no, you know, I just don't have that. I don't have the bandwidth for that right now.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there were a lot of things on my list three. And and like I said, I, which is, and for those of you who weren't at my talk, I'm sorry, my list three was the things that I sort of said I, I wasn't sure what I was doing or where it was taking me. and And honestly, some of those things on list three at the time of the accident used to be on list one. They were really important. And so at one point, I was really trying to define myself as a surgical educator, and I was the clerkship director. I was really passionate about education, and that was really important to me. But because I really went all in on being a clerkship director and I kept speaking up and coming up with ideas, I quickly found myself the education person. And I was on every committee of the medical school. Mm -hmm. And now I was committing almost 10 hours a week to different medical school committees on different things. And some of them I really needed to be on because it was important. But some of them were just because they needed a person. And I said yes because I thought I should have. And it was just a huge sink on my time to do all that. And then because I was doing that, then I started getting involved nationally in educational movements and initiatives. And it's not that I didn't care about education. I absolutely did. But I also knew that I was never going to define myself as a surgical educator. That wasn't how I wanted to be remembered. I had no aspirations to be president of the Association of Surgical Education. That wasn't how I was defining my career path. And yet I had so many things that were taking me in that direction. And then I realized that if that wasn't the direction I wanted to go, then maybe those opportunities weren't the right place for me. And really, I should have been giving those opportunities to the people that really wanted that career path and that trajectory. Um, so those were some of the things that I stepped away from. And it's not that I didn't value them or I didn't enjoy doing them, but I also knew that that wasn't a pathway to get me where I ultimately wanted to be.
1: Great. Uh, well, something we've been trying to ask uh, all of our guests or many of our guests um is uh, in your field in endocrine surgery, uh, what is one thing, one big unanswered question uh, that you think we'll have an answer to in the next five years?
2: Well, I hope I hope that I'm going to be the one that maybe hopefully provide an answer. I think the one question that uh, has been plaguing us is sort of the role of prophylactic central neck dissection for papillary thyroid cancer. Mm-hmm. It's been a debate. Um, initially, we never did it. And then everyone said, oh, we should always do it. And now we've gone back to maybe we shouldn't be doing it. And this is an issue that I recognized over five years ago was sort of the, the next debate in thyroid cancer. And so it took me a long time. I think I worked for almost four years to get funding for it. But I ultimately got the NIH to fund it uh, through an R O one for a randomized controlled trial that's ongoing right now. Wow. And so we are approaching our last year of recruitment uh, for the randomization of that. And it is my hope that the paper that comes out of that is going to help give us a little bit more definitive answer about what really are the risks of that and what are the benefits and is this something we should be offering patients? I think ultimately the answer is probably more nuanced than that. It's not an all yes or an all no. There's probably some patients that probably do benefit from it and some patients that don't and try and identify who those patients are. Um, but i think the other thing about that trial and it's and this is the thing about research right so the trial was designed to try to answer that question but i would say that probably what we've learned more than anything is there's a huge qualitative component to it and uh, really talking to patients about their experience and what they go through and what their perceptions are of their treatment and what their post-op recovery and has been incredibly eye-opening and i think sometimes as surgeons we we think we know what our patients' outcomes are and what they're experiencing yeah. we find there's a huge disconnect between what they're telling us and what they're actually telling an interviewer about what they're experiencing. So I think probably the greatest uh, benefit of doing that trial is that I'm really understanding the patient's perspective and experience in in the treatment of thyroid cancer. So hopefully we'll be able to give some good information to help educate that.
3: Now on the flip side, what's something that you think uh, is all hype now and you know, looking back 10 years from now, we'll say, wow, we were doing something really crazy there.
2: Yeah, so... You know, there's a couple things in in our field that are sort of interesting. I think there's been this big push towards minimally invasive approaches and novel ways to take out a thyroid. Yeah. Initially, it was through the armpit um, approaching the neck, and um, I, I don't... You know, caught on in a few areas, but I don't think it ever really caught in the mainstream because I think it introduced new complications, complications that otherwise weren't, right. <laughs> you know, on the radar. Um, now the latest approach is uh, transoral. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I think that that probably has more of an, op- you know, an opportunity. But I think, again, the trade off is it is adding a more complications, you know, to a surgery and a little bit to really avoid a scar. and so it's not that it can't be done and it can't be done safely. I think the question is is really what's the morbidity we're trying to avoid. Um and as much as I know for some people a neck scar is is life altering for, for most patients those scars heal really beautifully and, and it's really not a major thing that we're trying to fix. Yeah. Um so I think it's just a balance of the appropriate patient selection that that I don't think that'll ever become the way of the future how we always do thyroid surgery but I think there's going to be a select patients who are going to choose that option. Going going forward.
1: Great. Well, Dr. Siple, uh, we don't want to take too much of your time. Thank you for sitting down with us. Uh, we'd love to have you on in the future for a full-length episode um, uh, if, if you have a chance. But thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Okay. Wu and Jason still here at ASC 2018. We're sitting down now with our, with our good friend, uh, Matthew J. Martin. He's the trauma director at uh, Madigan Army Medical Center and a fellow podcaster. Um, as most of you probably know, he is uh, involved with the East TraumaCast. So after you finish listening to all our podcasts, then you can go over and start listening to the TraumaCast. Uh, Dr. Martin, thanks for sitting down with us. Thank you. Uh, so this morning we've been in sessions uh, here at the ASC. Um, you were the moderator at the trauma critical care session. Um, what's your been your impression of the meeting so far this year? Is there anything this morning that uh, you found particularly interesting or stood out to you?
4: Yeah. So so the meeting overall has been great as usual. Uh, this this uh, organization and meeting. You know this is a combined AAS and SUS meeting. It's just continued to grow um it's got great sessions great science uh, the nice thing is it's got a bunch of breakouts so you can really focus on the areas that, that you want to hear about uh probably the only downside is there's there's always more than one session you know that you'd love to go to so right. so it's almost a, an embarrassment of riches here um but but a great year and, and these organizations uh, really focus on the young developing academic surgeon uh which is which is great so it uh, it's a very uh, junior focused organization the leadership uh, are all really junior to mid-career uh, people and and they really focus on mentoring on developing on having good science so uh it's a great vibe K- kind of like east for trauma where east is really focused on the young trauma surgeon uh, this is similar to that for the young academic surgeon
1: yeah, and I really want to reiterate that. That's something that a lot of the people we've had on have mentioned. That for anybody out there, especially junior faculty or junior staff, residents, fellows, um, if you haven't been to this conference, put it on your radar for next year. Watch the you know uh, call for abstracts and try and get something in because it's a it's a great conference to come to to meet people um, and really see a, a wide breadth of uh, of of science that's being done. Um, So with you, we wanted to talk about a few things, you know, trauma-critical care, you do a lot of bariatrics, Um, you you have a pretty uh, broad-based practice, Um, but uh, you're a prolific researcher in the field of trauma. Uh, Most people I'm sure know that. Uh, We want to ask, so what would you think is the biggest unanswered question in the field of trauma-critical care that you think we'll have an answer for in the next five years? Uh, I, I think the
4: resuscitation ratio and, and massive transfusion question is is still out there, still up in the air. Uh, you know, we had the big randomized proper study, which really came out to be a somewhat negative study. You know, it didn't show a, a long-term benefit, uh, right. although there was some decreased deaths at 24 hours from hemorrhage, and people are now trying to parse that out and what it means. Uh, and then, of course, the other big thing that's on the rise is using tag or rotem to guide your resuscitation and whether you, that's better than just a strict one to one to one ratio. Uh, so so I think that's a question we need to answer. There's a bunch of interest in it. There's ratio abstracts at every meeting. So I, I think we'll have more
3: clarification over the next five years. Uh, do you have a prediction for us? Is it going to go one way or the other or is still way too early to tell? Uh, you know, personally, I think
4: I think it's gonna. I, th- I think a, a one to two or a one to one to two is is probably going to be as good as a one to one to one. I I, I kind of believe the longer term outcome data from Proper that there's not much of a difference between those two, uh, and that's one of the problems with Proper is I think those are both good resuscitation strategies. Right, they didn't compare a one to one or a one to two versus what we used to do. Right, which is like one to ten. Right, right? we give ten pack sales and then yeah. we'd think about giving FFP. Yeah. Uh, that's where I think the benefit is. Um, so, so th- th- that would be my guess. Uh, you know, of, of what's going to come of this, but but the tag and Rotem guided question is still out there.
1: Do you see the tag and Rotem uh, becoming? Because right now it's kind of at it's a, it's a specific institutions. Do you, do you see in the next five years, do you really think that that's going to – are we going to be doing that at every ho- – or is the community hospital going to be doing the resuscitations by taking Rotem?
4: Yeah, that that's the big debate now. And, uh, Should and I invest is what I'm asking. I don't know
1: which way that's going to go.
4: My bet would be more level one centers are yeah. going to adopt it and maybe some level twos. Uh, but beyond that, I don't think you're going to see a whole lot of adoption. Uh, you know, one of the problems is any, you're introducing a now more complex system with a whole bunch of numbers, right? There's, mm-hmm. you know, there's at least five or six main tag parameters. Then there's a whole bunch of extra tag tests you can do. And anytime you introduce more and more complex data, you know, you, you oftentimes don't get a better picture. You just get more confusion. And we saw that with the Swan-Gans catheter. Yeah. Uh, we added a whole bunch of data points. People either didn't know what to do with them, or they made wrong decisions. And and how many times do we use swans these days? So I I, I kind of make that comparison to tag and Rotem uh, somewhat in that it may be here for the long run, but I wouldn't be surprised if five years from now, very few people were using it.
1: So interesting idea. So we've been to, a couple of people have actually brought up the idea at this conference about um, neural networks and artificial intelligence. Um, being used to interpret uh, clinical data, do you is is there a role for that with interpreting these complex, uh, you know, coagulation and you know, and well, hyperfibrinolysis? Keep, and if we keep adding all these parameters, we well, have no choice. Yeah, right. You know, the the human
4: mind can only process so much. So yeah. so we're definitely going the way of you know a, m- a lot of this data is going to need to be automatically analyzed and then presented in a simplified format or even taken from digital to a visual mm-hmm. presentation. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, the nice thing about artificial intelligence and neural networks is that you know, they're a much smarter way to analyze that and come up with answers because uh, they, they can handle data that has all kinds of abnormal distributions, whereas what we usually do is,
3: you know, do a logistic regression, get an odds ratio, and, and, and call it a day. Right, right, right. So what's hot right now that you think in like five, ten years will have all played out to be just pure hype? Well, well, well. As I mentioned, uh,
4: Tag and Rotem, I'm not sure, I, and I wouldn't be surprised if it plays out. I mean, if you if you if you look at some of the data on the reliability and the reproducibility, although the devices are getting better, it, you know, they're pretty concerning. Uh, some of our residents who have used it call it the random number generator. Hmm. Uh, so, so I wouldn't be surprised. It definitely is is being hyped now, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was really falling out of favor five or ten years from now um there's a, a couple other things there's a lot of interest in reboa now and that's a huge huge debate um although un, until we get something better for non-compressible truncal hemorrhage i, I do think reboa is going to have a role um and then a, a lot of a lot of debate about drugs like txa yeah. uh, and whether that's going to stand the test of time or whether that's going to go away kind of like factor seven did uh so so uh those are all areas that are hot topics. I don't necessarily know if, if they're gonna disappear or not. Um, so so I, don't, I don't have a good answer for, for, if there's something that I think is, I'm sure is hype and is gonna go away, at least in the field of trauma.
1: All right, Dr. Martin, well, thank you for sitting down with us. Again, we're at ASC 2018. If, you, if our listeners wanna find you, um, how's the best way to get in contact with you, Twitter? Oh, Twitter, at docmartin22.
4: Um, you can try my Madigan address, which will probably only be good for another six to seven months. Yeah, and you're on to bit, bigger, bigger, better I re- things. Retire from the army. Well, that's what you think. <laughs>
3: All right, Doctor Martin, have a great day. Thank you. All right, thanks, guys. All right, welcome back. This is Jason Bingham and Wu Do uh, covering the ASC 2018 meeting. Today, we are thrilled to have Dr. Joachim Havens. He is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and director of emergency general surgery at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Havens, thanks for being here.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure.
3: Yeah, so Dr. Havens, what's been your impression of the conference so far?
0: It, it's been a lot of fun. You know, Jacksonville is a huge city. It's it's interesting. There's a lot to do. Um, I brought my wife out, so we've done some sightseeing, but also... Um, meeting up with old friends and colleagues here like you for instance um it's been a it's been a pleasure to be here
3: yeah it's quite surreal dr havens was one of my uh, big mentors that encouraged me to go into surgery so what a surreal moment for me uh in any case uh we understand you just moderated a panel uh, what was that like what was exciting in the meeting
0: yeah so i i've i actually i have a few uh abstracts here i love coming with residents that I've worked with and seeing them present, and I was moderating a, a clinical outcomes oral session just now, so it's an opportunity to to listen to some of the best and the brightest, you know, the future of surgery and uh, uh, learn from them.
1: Uh, so, Doctor Haymans, you are the director of uh, emergency general surgery. Can you talk to us a little bit about emergency general surgery? What does that entail, and uh, how did you get involved in that?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting topic, you know, I. I I originally started this thought just because um, it's what I do, or I'm a trauma emergency surgeon, and I take care of urgent patients all the time. And in starting to think about surgical quality and improving outcomes in surgery, I started, of course, looking at my patients, as we should do, and realized that my outcomes weren't that great. And you you have to sort of face the fact, is it me or is it the system or, or what's going on? And so I looked closer at what we were doing. And um, reviewing the literature, I realized that when procedures are done emergently, and Dr. Doe, you looked at some of this, they're about six times more likely to have a bad outcome for the same procedure. So, And that's across the board. That wasn't just me. That wasn't my fault. That was what we do. So I started to recognize that, well, if if our outcomes are so dramatically different than the same procedures performed electively, there's got to be some big underlying issues there. And it's also got to be a great place for quality improvement. So um, there didn't used to be a a division of uh, emergency general surgery at the Brigham. And in in looking at this, I said, this is something we need to focus on. So um, we're instituting quality safety measures we're actually looking at our data and we're trying to think about process measures to improve outcomes in this group of patients and so it's it's been exciting to to make some positive change on surgical outcomes by identifying this group can
1: you give us uh, an example of like of how some changes you've made based on the the data that you've uh, obtained
0: yeah absolutely and and woo you've you've been part of this we started off looking at how do we treat emergency and elective patients differently. One of the things that that Wu showed and he published was that um, when a case is emergent, even though the blood loss might be the same for an emergent and elective case, the amount of blood products that we give the patient is dramatically different for the emergency cases. For example, uh, an emergency colectomy um, that might get twice as much Packed red blood cells and up to three times as much fresh frozen plasma for the same blood loss as an elective colectomy, and that transfusion is associated with worse outcomes. So there's some decision-making process that enters into this and um, affects outcomes. So we went on to then develop an emergency general surgery checklist that we implemented at the Brigham that guides surgeons and anesthesiologists and nurses to discuss before administering any blood products.
1: Yeah. So what goes behind that? Do you think that, how much, how much do you think the surgeon and the team's attitude towards that particular case plays into that versus something like the patient's, you know, the emergency patient's physiology versus mm-hmm. the elective patient's physiology?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's the crux of all this, right? When One of the first papers I published on emergency general surgery, um, maybe five years ago, the first letter to the editor I got was, well, of course, emergency patients do worse because they're sicker. There's nothing you can do about that. Yeah. And in looking at that, there's some truth. Like they are sicker and sicker patients do worse. And you can you can attribute some mortality to, yeah, you presented later, you presented in a worse condition, you'll do worse. But that's not the whole story. There's What if 40% of it, is systems processes and and in decisions that we make right if you're talking about a a fold increase in mortality yeah. maybe we could reduce that to a fourfold increase in mortality reduce reduce by 30% the bad outcomes just by changing our our decision making so there's certainly a, a factor that is sick patients do worse but how we manage them is definitely something we can control and uh, decisions we make can affect outcomes. I'm
1: sure it's a, I'm sure it's a diffi- difficult thing to kind of quantify, but have you, um, where are we as far as, um, have we seen any improvements with any of these interventions that we've been able to uh, prove?
0: So short answer is probably no. Um, we've looked at quality measures and we we can see that surgeon uh, perception is improvement. Nursing perception is that there's been improvement. Um, And blood product administration might go down. We don't have big enough numbers to show uh, overall outcome improvement. Uh, The only, that there's some emerging data out of uh, England that just shows that if you institute an ERAS type protocol, a evidence-based best practices measures in emergency laparotomies, you do have improved outcomes. So there are some Process measures that can improve outcomes.
3: Great, awesome. Uh, on the side, Doctor Havens, we understand that you're doing quite a bit of international travel. Could you tell us a little bit more about this?
0: <laughs> it, it is. It's it's fun, and you know, I've I've uh, one of the that when I started in surgery, one of the things I said was, um, for the first three years, I'm going to say yes to everything, and at the end of three years, I evaluated that and decided that that was the right thing. And so from that point on, I've just I've had a policy of saying yes. So um, wherever uh, I can go, uh, I enjoy seeing the world, meeting new people, learning about new cultures. So it's been fantastic. I just got back um, last week from a trip to Thailand with Ariadne Laboratories, where we uh, were instituting a new device checklist uh, into ORs uh, throughout Thailand, uh, it was a partnership with Johnson & Johnson, so an interesting collaboration with industry to improve safety um, around the implementation of new devices in the operating room, starting in in Thailand of all places, but hopefully spreading worldwide.
3: Awesome. Uh, you know, we want to make sure you get back to the rest of the conference in time, but before you go, we have to ask, uh, where's the best surf around the world?
0: <laughs> it, it, it's that's almost like asking which kid is your favorite. Um, there's, there's so many great places. Uh, the place I always wind up going back to is, uh, um, Tavarua Island in Fiji. It's a real well-known spot, but, um, if you can get out to, if you can get out to Indonesia, anywhere throughout Indonesia, South Pacific, preferably someplace warm. That's my, my choice.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you for sitting down with us today. We'd love to have you back on for
3: a full episode, uh, in the future. So thank you.
0: Absolutely. My pleasure. Anytime.
3: So that does it for the Academic Surgical Congress uh, 2018. We hope you enjoyed this experience. And remember, submit your abstracts, come to this conference as a resident. It's a great experience for you to get uh, connected to all the staff who are willing and, and able to help you advance in your career. So thanks for listening. Subscribe and follow us on Twitter.